0: I helped her write it, and I'm crying. Thanks. <clears> Thanks. <throat> <makes> <clears throat> if you're new with us uh, today... Is anybody sitting so they can't see up there? If there are people behind you, could you scrunch and be love thy neighbor a little bit? And If there's anybody who is seated in a bad spot or whatever, just uh, I don't see anybody moving, so maybe it's all right. But uh, I know we're a little tight upstairs, I was told. If you're new with us today, we are in the third and final week of a series. Uh, where We're actually in a series called The Church on Fire, which is a series uh, looking at the book of Acts. And we came to Acts chapter 15, and the apostles had a conundrum in the fact that they were looking on what to do about this problem with people who are non-Jewish becoming Christians. It hadn't happened before, and so now they were having to deal with the issue, should we have these people become Jews? Should they go through circumcision and all the other uh, ethnic rites in order to become Jewish people first. And in Acts 15, the, the uh, James is speaking, but he's speaking on behalf of the apostles. And he says in verse 19 of chapter 15, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And we wanted to pause there. We waited a month just due to some scheduling conflicts. But we, we wanted to ask the question, why did they include the issue of sexual immorality? All those other things have to do kind of with more ethnic uh, principles of being a Jew. But this one, sexual immorality, was something that was kind of unique. Why didn't they include greed or idolatry or or all kinds of different Things. Why do they include sexual immorality? And as we've looked at our study, we've seen that it's primarily because sexuality in some way is an analogy of how God has made us. Excuse me, the analogy between God and us. And there's all kinds of things of sexuality that are, that are way more than just an act. In our study, we've looked at how... This, two weeks ago, we looked at how God views sexuality. And then last week, we looked at how our culture... Views sexuality and they are very different. Just I, I wrote an email this week and I just to you all, and I just want to highlight some of the differences. First thing is, God says that sex is a good thing created by Him for our pleasure and to be an analogy of His great love for us. In Ephesians 5, you can find that. Our society says that it's a dirty thing. It's something you laugh about, you tell crass jokes about. God says that sex is ultimately designed as, as a, as a way for us to, uh, it's a gift given to end aloneness in marriage ultimately. Our society says that sex is to be gratified any way you can through pornography, lust, or masturbation. This in fact heightens aloneness. The very thing God created sex to end. God says that sex is reserved for the consummation of a marriage relationship in which a man and a woman each leave their families. They become united, or as the, the uh, King James says, cleave together. They, they become legally in the sight of witnesses and of God. And they become one in every area, including physically. Our society says that sex is primarily a physical release, that denying this is unnatural, and that we need to just stop being prudish about this whole abstinence thing and just let go and have some fun. God says he wants you to experience maximum sex, the kind that you can fully enjoy and which leaves you without shame because of misuse, waiting until marriage makes the experience so much sweeter. And our society tells us that God is a killjoy, making you feel ashamed of your sexuality and wanting you to just say no to your natural desires. God also says that this wonderful thing called sex is the very vehicle that he used to... He, He made this sexuality thing, but out of it, and we haven't talked at all about this, out of this comes a wonderful thing. Kids. Now, we could, we could pollinate folks. <laughs> right? Or it could be, just be like fish and just swim by and go, oh, there's some eggs. <laughs> but God doesn't do that. God does not do that. Something amazing that procreation it comes out of this oneness relationship. It is amazing. He says that children, and through, act, through this one act of oneness, love and enjoyment comes from the blessing of offspring. Our society says that children are an unhealthy byproduct of sex. Children are to be avoided as long as possible since they get in the way of true happiness in life. Now, I know not everyone in society says that, but you can hear that. You have got two very different viewpoints here. It's radical. I can't think of an issue other than how you get to heaven that would be more different than what God says about sexuality and what our culture says about sexuality. Those of you who are here this morning and you like analogies, you are in hog heaven this morning. (laughs) Because I'm going to put two together. Huh? This is not to be done at home, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> only by a trained professional. First analogy, when I was in college, I wanted to, and this, is, this is a true story, when I was in college, I wanted to go to downtown St. Paul, or actually Snelling and, and, and Selby, because I wanted to get to the St. Paul Curling Club. My roommate and I were curlers of all strange things. 1982 state champs. Thank you very much. Um, we were curlers, and we were going, wanted to get downtown St. Paul to see how we could play or how we could curl here in, in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Do you know my small town of Hibbing, Minnesota has eight sheets of ice? St. Paul, Minnesota, seven. <laughs> what is up with that? Chisholm, Minnesota, has its own curling rink. Gilbert has its own curling rink. St. Paul, only one of Twin Cities, seven sheets, that's it. I'm speaking Swahili to you, I know. But <laughs> the point of the story is I wanted to get from, I wanted to get from the campus where I lived, downtown St. Paul. So I, I, being from Hibbing, Minnesota, I don't know how to do this. So I, I, I go and I, I pick up a bus schedule, look for all the different things, look at the route thing. Aha, 16A. Uh, something like this. You see, if you've done... One more. There you go. There you go. 16A. If you've, if you've ever uh, ridden up and down a university, you know 16A is your bus. So, great. That's a good start. Let's start with 16A. So, coming from Hiving, Minnesota, I just, I just, I don't know, I just, just found a 16A. And we were down by Stubborn Herbs, and there was a 16A. It was coming. So, we just got on it. And it was going this way. <laughs> I don't know any different. So we just kind of sat there and realized, oh, this kind of goes through Minneapolis, I guess. <laughs> so we're riding it. We get to the very end of... We're just sitting there. We don't have a clue. We get to the very end of the route, and the bus driver pssst, you know, stops, opens up the door, looks back and sees us. And he says, this is the last stop. And we said, well, isn't this the 16A? He says, sure, this is 16A. Well, doesn't this go to St. Paul? He says, no, 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 you have to take the eastbound 16A. Oh, I have to take the eastbound. There's two different, I thought, you know. So we, we just kind of sat there and, went, and he kind of looks at us funny. We said, well, we'll just wait for it to turn around and go the other way. He says, no, no, you don't get it. You got to get off this bus and get on the right bus. There are two different buses of sexuality, folks. One's going to feel like it's going to the curling club where you all want to (laughs) go. But it's not. It's going 180 degrees the wrong way. Right bus, wrong direction. Now, I did not know in 1982 when I stepped on that bus that 23 years later it would be so informative <laughs> second analogy it's june 28th 1904 there was a train wreck it looked exactly like that cuz that's the picture from it <laughs> there was a raging storm and two trains were involved in a terrible collision a uh, number 66 and a work train which is number 10. Let me read from portions of this event from the Chaska Valley Herald. This was in Chaska, Minnesota. It was written 2 days later, June 30th, 1904. It says the work train after fin-, and this is kind of funny English, so you just kind of have to I'm reading it right, okay? But okay, the work train after finishing the day's work and running without orders was on its way to Chaska to bring in the workmen who board in this city. The conductor of the work train, knowing the local freight was about two and a half hours late, thought he could get his train to the city before the freight train pulled out. And his train was running pretty fast when coming down the grade from the high trestle, and when just opposite the racetrack, the engineer noticed the local freight train coming up the grade and that the distance between the two trains was a very short yeah and a collision was inevitable and this is still one sentence at once shut down <laughs> and he which is the fireman jumped thus saving their lives I, these probably were probably people from norway or something learning english or i don't know you get the picture, though. This, this other train was late, and so this guy thought, I can get into town, and he's coming down the grade. It's a raging storm, and this one's coming up the grade. On account of the heavy rainstorm, the oncoming train was not noticed until very close by, and the firemen then ran for the steps and had gained them, but it was too late. Just as he jumped, the trains collided, catching him and throwing him below the wheels of the engine, cutting off both of his feet, breaking his arm, and cutting a deep gash in his forehead. Ernest Barr, another workman, sustained a severe fracture of the chest, but it is, un- but it is expected he will recover. The engineer on the local jumped in time, but the fireman, C.C. C. Hewitt, could not get out and was caught in the collision." but in some uh, accountable manner crawled out of the debris with only his collarbone bone broken. It is a miraculous escape from death. The injured men were moved to the residence of William Hayman, where, where Dr. Schrober and Marshall were summoned and medication aid given to them. About 10.30 in the evening they were taken to Minneapolis on an extra. Assume that's a train. Now listen, listen to this. This is the guy who miraculously escaped. C.C. C. Hewitt, the fireman, went to Asbury Hospital, and his injuries are not necessarily fatal. Before being taken to the train to be moved to the hospital, he asked that he be carried to the scene of the wreck, and when shown the cab wherein he was confined, he exclaimed, Holy smoke! <laughs> How did I ever get out of there alive? (laughs) You've got two views of sexuality. Almost everyone, if not everyone in this room, has been involved in this train wreck. In some way, shape, or form. Some of you, it's just been a little bump. Others of you, it looks like that. What I want to talk about this morning is how to get on the right bus and or how to get out of the train wreck alive. Holy smoke, what do I do now? Now, I want to be real careful with something here. I want to go through six things, and I'm going to call them steps. But they're not steps, okay? They're not steps like, how do you get a loan from the bank? There's steps to that. This is more like a journey. These are more like things you're involved with, and you don't really ever leave one. You just kind of keep adding it up. It's not steps like one, two, three, four, five, and six. With that said, let me give you six steps how to do this. I want to divide this into two things. First of all, I want to talk about being restored when you yourself are the one who've gotten on the wrong bus. Then I want to spend just a little bit of time, and I have to address it. It should be another whole week, but I just feel the need to address it this week. What do you do when somebody else pushed you on the wrong bus? What happens if you're the victim? of sexual abuse or rape or those kind of things. I need to address that. So let's, let's look at this first one. How do you get forgiveness and restoration? Now, if you're not into steps, it all comes down to one simple thing. Actually, they both kind of do for both things. It comes down to your theology of God, period. It comes down to your understanding of who God is, That's the way you get wholeness. Chris Massimer, where'd you go, Chris? He was here, there he is. Chris, the only astute one in the whole bunch of you noticed that two weeks ago I had made mention of God being like a father who finds his daughter who's run away from home and she's prostituted herself and she's there lying naked on the the, the ground Nancy made reference to this too. And and what is God's reaction to that? It's it's like a father looking at his daughter and he comes to her and he holds her. In Nancy's case, he puts a cover over and there's just love. That's the father heart of God. Last week I mentioned that if you were trying to act out sexually to punish God, you can't punish God. He doesn't have, he doesn't have a, a, oh, boo-hoo-hoo, you're you're hurting me because you're, you know, slapping me. The only emotion God has is, or I said, an emotion that God has towards you is anger. that, That sin makes God wrathful. And Chris, the only astute one of all of you, said, which one is it? Which one is the biblical view of God? The answer biblically is what? The answer is yes. The answer is both. And if you push one without the other, this will make no sense to you. The cross will make no sense to you if you push one without the other. So with that said, let me start with our first first thing. The first step is to feel the sting of your sin. It's not just... It's not just stupid that you got on the 16A going west when you wanted to go east. You could use that analogy that way. There's more to it than this. You need to feel the sting of it. You need to feel the gravity of your sin in such a way that it deeply concerns you. It scares you. It frightens you. Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, I commend it to you. We're just going to look at the first three verses for this point. It says, as for you, Paul's speaking to people who have come to Christ. He says, before that time, you've got to understand what sin is. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, our flesh, and followed its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Oh my goodness, is that true? Is that the picture of God that I'm supposed to have? Yes. Yes. It's a healthy thing to have a picture of God as holy and almighty and just. And you're shaking in your boots. That's a healthy thing. You won't ever understand grace until you understand how sinful you are. You won't ever get release from the pain of sexual immorality in your own life until you come to God and say, oh my goodness, this is serious. I'm not going to leave you there, but that is of the first thing. Otherwise, your apology to God is, oh, no big deal, sorry, whatever. Won't let it happen again. The second process you go through is you bow your heart before your loving Father. And these two images of God are not in conflict. They are beautiful. God is holy and just and demands perfect justice for sin. And he's also a loving father who is waiting for you to come home. Jesus gave a parable in Luke chapter 15 to describe this situation. And it's beautiful. Luke chapter 15 is where a son asks his father for his inheritance ahead of time, before his father's dead. And then he goes off and he squanders this inheritance on loose living, on prostitutes, on gambling, on drugs, sex, rock and roll, whatever. He squanders it until he's out of money, he's living horribly, and he decides to come home. How will the father treat him? Luke 15, Jesus is telling this story. It's a made-up story, but Jesus wants to make a point. The prodigal son is speaking here in in verse 17. He says, when he, that's the, the son, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to the son. You know how undignified in that culture it was for an elder man to run? He ran. The kid is a dot in the distance. In other words, the father's looking for him. He runs out to the son. This sinner, scoundrel son, he runs out to the son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now listen to the father's heart here. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. If you highlight just Luke 15, it's no big deal. Just come home, whatever. If you highlight just Ephesians 2, you have a father who can't wait to give him a lecture. You put the two together, and it's very difficult to do, but you put the two together And you've got biblical Christianity, which should shock you, which drove me to tears during worship when we sang the song, Nothing But the Blood. What can wash away my sins? Who would care for Steve? God Almighty, the just one and the merciful one. Third thing, third journey, third step, whatever you want to call it. Cling to the cross of Jesus. You've got to understand, at the cross of Jesus, God's justice and His mercy collide. Paul in Romans chapter 3, I think, gives this better than anywhere else. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. The NIV uses a simple word there. The fancy word is propitiation. What propitiation is, is when you take the wrath, you do the time for somebody else's crime. You, you, you step aside the wrath of someone upon for someone else, on behalf of someone else. God presented Christ on the cross. So from this side of the cross, you've got wrath coming onto Jesus, which was meant for you and me. But it was given to Jesus, thus making God completely just. He cannot let sins just, ah, no big deal. No, they're a big deal. And this side of the cross, you see the wrath. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance, in His mercy, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it, To demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just. And the period could stop there. But it doesn't. It says so as to be just. And the one who justifies. Those who have faith in Jesus. This side of the cross says. I love you so much. That I'm going to send my son. To die on the cross. Sin is a big deal. It's so big that. The son of God had to come and die for your sins. Cling to that. Now, some of us have gotten the message, we understand all that, we've been raised in the church, or whatever, we get the basic, you know, God loves me, he has a wonderful plan for my life. I understand all that. But something doesn't connect with us when we think of sins that we're ashamed of, especially in the area of sexuality. There are sins that we're ashamed of, and somehow, even though it makes no sense, but it does when you're alone, somehow Jesus didn't die for those. Jesus died for yucky sins. Whatever the worst thing you can possibly think of, Jesus died for that sin. Jesus died for sexual sins. Amen? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that sin is very, very serious. But our Lord Jesus Christ came to die for sin. Not sin with the small s, put the sin with the capital S on that cross. Let him have it. Sexual sin is not unforgivable or unrestorable. That is a lie. It is not. It is not unforgivable or unrestorable. Fourth process, fourth thing. Don't worship your sin. I can remember one night in particular, I was wrestling through some of the areas of my life that were out of whack with I know the way God wanted to be. There were capital S sins in my own life, and I was really struggling with whether or not Jesus died for them. I remember having a conversation with the devil, and I don't actually recommend this necessarily, but I was having a conversation with the devil over this because he was just condemning me, condemning me, condemning me on this stuff. And I finally said, you know what? I may never come that I have victory in these areas. I may struggle with this till the day I die. But you know what? From this night, if it was late at night, from this night forward, I refuse to worship my sin. What I mean by it is this. Don't let your sin define you. Don't do it. It's, the, it's a trick of the enemy. He wants you to, oh, okay, you're someone who struggles with, with lust. Ooh, you're a luster. That, that, that's not what the scriptures talk about you. 1 John 1, 8-10 is, is a passage I encourage you to put to memory. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And not just forgive it, but purify us from all unrighteousness. You see that? If you come to him, he'll forgive and he'll cleanse If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Don't worship your sin. Worship God. Don't worship your sin. Don't let it define you. Fifth part of the process is, and this is a tough one, but I think it's important. Confess your sins to someone. I don't understand that. Don't get me wrong. You, you do not need, for the most part, unless there's someone you've sinned against, you do not need to do this in order to be right with God. I'm not saying about that. But James has this curious passage in the, end of, in the end of James chapter 5 that I find to be very, very, very helpful. James chapter 5 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. And then this phrase, So that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. There's something that happens when I take things out of the darkness and bring them into the light with somebody else that all of a sudden this becomes manageable. I don't totally understand that, but I know it to be true. You may need to do this anonymously. There are forums where you can do this. now. I'm going to share a couple that have happened on my blog. You may need to do it that way. You may need to do it some other way. I think it's best if you can have a trusted friend and you just share them. Either your, and this works for the case of being abused too, you you just share it with them. And it comes out of the, the darkness and your inner struggles and all of a sudden it's in the light. And if nothing more happens than that, and by the way, those of you who are trying to help people, sometimes just shut up and listen. Don't say anything that gets in the way. Worst thing Job's counselors do was say something. For seven days, they just sit there. It's the best thing they did. Confess your sins to one another. And the last thing is, is remember, you're not going to define yourself by your sin. You're not going to allow that to define you. What you are going to do is you're going to let God define you. You are going to fill yourself with worship you're going to fill yourself with God and you're not going to let anything else you're not going to let all these wrong things come to your mind you're going to let God define you you're going to let God fill you and you're going to do that through a life of worship it's a 24/7 thing are you going to be a worshipper not just during the 25 minutes that we sing praise songs that's part of it sure but you're going to live a life or like Paul says in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God. Are you gonna, that's what I'm talking about. It's a 24-7 deal. <clears throat> Hebrews 12 talks about this. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, a bunch of people in history past, it says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And here's the phrase. Let us fix our eyes. Get it? Fix. it. just fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it says, consider him. So, ponder him think about jesus fix your eyes on him and consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men when he was nailed to that cross what did he say father forgive them for they know not what they do consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you are not so that you will not grow weary and lose heart I don't know any other ways of healing other than these, this process. It's not a checkbox You go through one, but it's, it's the way you get healing. It's the way you get healing in any sin, but especially in this area because there's so much shame involved with it. This is how healing happens. Nancy said it really well. When, she, when the Holy Spirit communicated to her how valuable and how she could be forgiven, everything changed. Now, I want to shift gears here for a little bit and talk about those who are in need of healing of sexual abuse. If stats are correct, one in five families have somewhere in their lineage some forms of child abuse going on and and somewhere in the uh, family tree and that one in ten there's Some types of incestuous relationship going on. One in ten. Add on to that the wrong ways we've dealt with sexuality or um, forced sex, rape. There's a lot of people that have become victims of sexuality, and you've been pushed onto the bus. I'm putting up on my blog right now just some thoughts about this. And, and last night, two anonymous people wrote in. I want to read these. Just last night. Saturday, February 26th on, on my blog, which is stevetreichler.blogspot.com. Saturday, February 26th, 8:15. I was raped. So while I've heard, uh, uh, excuse me, the question I have is what are the lies you're hearing? What are the lies you're hearing about sexuality? I was raped, so while I've heard a lot of different lies, they all stem from the same evil that tempts us all. The lies I've heard are, it's my fault. I could have done something to stop it. I probably won't be able to heal from it because it happened such a long time ago. My future partner won't be able to see God in me because I've been shamed in this way. I've had to stand up to the lives and smother them with truth, the truth that Jesus died for our sins and the sins of everyone around us. Not only is there freedom in that, but there's forgiveness. I, I didn't read this till this morning. Someone is could very well be someone in this room replied it to them at nine fifty seven. Says, "Hey, anonymous, you should know that your future partner will be able to see God in you. Rape is very painful." And there will be a painful process as your future partner comes to term with it. But they will, and it will make you closer. I can say this from personal experience. I was glad to read the words, I was glad to see the words freedom and forgiveness in the last sentence of your post. It sounds like you are on the right track. Please know that God loves you more than you can possibly understand. And that love is unconditional. You are his child, and nothing will change that. I didn't write that. Someone in this room maybe wrote that. Someone in the room maybe wrote the first post. When we're doing this series, The Church on Fire, and I'm talking about becoming a church like that, and I read posts that people have put that I know come from this church, I get psyched. You guys are on fire for the Lord. Doesn't mean that pain isn't there. It is there. I want to offer some hope this morning. I'm going to do this real briefly. And I know that those of you who've been affected by this may seem like I'm glossing it over. Actually, I'm not. I'm including it. Please hear that. I'm including this where I I could have not. I've just been encouraged by a few people to include this. Four things excuse me, five things that I, I want to mention this morning as you're trying to pick up the pieces of your life. First thing is to admit the reality of the abuse. Whatever it was, admit it. It was there. It happened. It did happen. I'll be the first one to tell you that it's, that it's not the defining thing in your life. It may feel like it. Don't let it define you. But it did happen. I would encourage you to, to, to admit it with someone. Doesn't have to be a professional? It can be. But does it need to be? Second thing. If it's ongoing, you must break the silence about it. If there's ongoing abuse happening, you must break the silence. This is not a little problem. This is a big one. If it's ongoing, you may talk to me, you may talk to any other pastoral staff here, you should talk to someone, and we need to get that changed. Third thing, know who your enemies are. Ultimately, your enemy, the, 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 the things that are going on inside your life, ultimately are threefold. I forgot to put one up here. But it's the effects of sin. It's the effects of shame that are hitting you, thinking there's something defective with you. And it's the overarching, this is the one I forgot to write down, but it's the overarching belief that I'll never feel happy until I get even. Or it's bitterness. Revenge. I need that. I need them to feel like I feel. If you ask anyone who's ever witnessed the execution of someone who has killed their loved one, the last thing they will say is they feel better now. Those are your enemies. Fourth thing to know. Is it God is just? God will avenge. Hebrews chapter 10, later on, we read some of it during worship. Later on, he says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I'm not saying that so you have some sense of, of oh good, they're going to get theirs. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, I'm saying that so you can let it go. It's God's to avenge. And know that if this horrific thing was done, there will be punishment for it in one of two forms. Upon them, or if they turn to Christ... That sin will be poured on Jesus. And those of you who are sitting here who have been through this may be saying, that is the last thing I want. I don't want them to be forgiven of this. I want them to pay. Which brings me to the last thing. And it's going to be very hard to hear this. But you need to release it. You need to forgive. doesn't mean you forget what happened. It doesn't mean you act as if nothing happened. Of course not. But you need to release We looked at those verses in uh, Hebrews 12. Verses 2 and 3 tell you to fix your eyes on Jesus. And why? Because, Because he was abused. It says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you might not grow weary and lose heart. I can't think of a better verse in the Bible for someone who's been abused. You consider him. You consider Jesus. Constantly. And you let it go. You let it go and say, Lord, this hurts like crazy, but I let it go to you. I want to share a story with you by someone named Terry. She talks about her recovery from, from abuse. This is Terry's story, and that's all, all she's known as. Between the ages of 9 and 15, I was sexually and physically abused. I now know that God was always there for me even though I did not see it or know it at the time. A child trusts older people without question and that is why so many are hurt. As we become Christians, we are told to trust God the same way as a child would trust a parent. But we know God would not hurt us or tell us to hurt others. After the abuse, I went through a series of emotions. The first being hate for this person. It was really eating me up inside. Every time I thought about, saw, or even heard his name mentioned, the hate would swell up inside of me like a gushing fountain. It helped me to not have to be anywhere near this man. I was always fearful, emotional, afraid to trust anyone, and lacked confidence in myself because I guess I always felt that it was somehow my fault. And I felt guilty about it. Then God got involved in this situation and told me point blank, it was not my fault. I was not to blame for what this person did to me. The adult knew better. But in order for me to be healed of this physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, (laughs) I had to forgive this man. You can bet I didn't like hearing this. I even argued with God about it, but He is always right. So I started to pray for the man every day, and when I did this, I started to feel better. God said that praying for him and asking God to forgive him released me from the pain of my abuser excuse me, from the pain my abuser had afflicted on me. I started to feel free and happy and pain-free in more ways than one. Now I no longer hate this person. I've only seen him maybe once in the last 20 years. And when I did see him, I had no more fear or hate in my heart for him. I know this person cannot hurt me anymore. And in fact, I kind of feel sorry for him because he does not know my God and is lost. And now I pray to God for his salvation. Quite a turnaround, ain't it? But God is so good to us. This is how you get healed of this. Start right now to pray for this person and God will touch your life in every area and you will come through this too. I want to close this morning by just asking you this. Two two questions to go back to our analogies. Are you on the right bus? Do you care that you're on the right bus? Or are you riding the wrong bus of sexuality? Saying, ah, ah, It'll eventually turn around. It won't. It won't. The very thing that all the the, the things of the 60s that Nancy referred to, the freedom that they felt, in essence, led to bondage. They felt bound. Are you on the right bus? The second thing is, there's been a train wreck in some way, shape, or form. Either you were... On the on the car or somebody pushed you by abusing situation under the cars, under the, the train cars, and there's been an act, an accident. And I want you to be like that guy who says, Holy smoke, how did I get out of that? Are you willing to allow God to heal you? Are you willing to start to let the process happen? You have to open up the gates to allow that to happen. Otherwise it won't. Let's pray together. Righteous, holy, almighty, loving, heavenly Father. We come to you in this matter because there is nowhere else to turn. Our hearts are broken over the pain of sexual immorality in our lives, in the lives of people around us. Our hearts are broken over this. And there is only one who knows how to put it back together. And that's you. So Holy Spirit, I come and, and pray that you would come into this room and do a work in people's life that, that my words don't do, but you can do by your Spirit. You can speak into their lives. You can encourage them. You can bless them. You can give them an overwhelming sense of forgiveness and release. You can help them to turn some events that have happened into their lives cause for testimony of what God has done. Holy Spirit, you can do that. I can't. No one on this stage can. None of our staff can. Holy Spirit, only you can come and do that. So I pray that you would. I pray that you'd come right now and speak to people's hearts. God, right now... Many of us in this room are scared to death of opening up the process of healing. God, would you, you, by your spirit, would you give us courage to open our hearts up and say, come Holy Spirit, come into my life and change me from the inside out. Make me be someone who's not just full of shame and sin and bitterness over this. Make me someone who's moldable in your hands. You can do that, God, because you have an amazing amount of authority, an amazing amount of power. We ask that you do it, a spiritual, supernatural work, as much healing as if it were a broken bone that was just miraculously healed in front of us. We ask that you'd come and you'd do that, Lord. God, be with us as we listen to other people as they share their struggles. May we be a balm of healing and not someone who heaps on more shame and abuse. We'd be a balm of healing. We'd be pointers to the cross. God, more than anything, in our interactions, just like this, these two people on my blog mentioned to one another, would we be that kind of healing source for one another? Would we be a church on fire that ministers to one another and to an incredibly hurting world, God? Just come and do your work now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.